0: everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. Today, Lexi and I are tackling The Lost Books of the Odyssey, a novel by Zachary Mason. This is not what either of us were expecting, but it was very enjoyable nonetheless, and I really think it's worth a read. So if you're interested in a non-traditional take on the Odyssey and all the stories contained within it, listen on. I think you'll probably enjoy this episode. So oh, I want to know, what tea are you drinking? I have mango pineapple green tea today. What? My- Wow. It's lovely. It's lovely. Mango
1: pineapple. Yes. I can't say as I've ever tried mango pineapple, but now I I'm I have like a strange feeling that I must try it.
0: It's very good. I if you find some, I would recommend it. Um it's one of those Aldi gets random things in every so often. And it's just one of their Today we have a random tea selection and I always buy a couple because they're not teas I usually see elsewhere. And oh. yeah, they're good, I like them.
1: Okay. I- I'm like, Megan. at some point, we're gonna sit down and have to talk teas, right? Cause I'm coming from not recently anymore, but I was just in the UK for a whole summer. Um, and there were lots of teas that I was like, what is this? This is amazing but also what is this so anyway they're very different from american teas so I'm yes like, we should we should talk tea at some point just tea what are you drinking today if anything i have a bottle of water next to me um because excellent choice hydration yeah. is important i like hydration but also when i work Tea runs right through me and I have a really, really bad penchant for wanting to like sit down and do a chunk of work. And if I'm drinking tea, I can't really do that.
0: It's not gonna Mm -hmm. happen. So I have my tea. I understand
1: that. But I will get my tea in like an hour.
0: Yeah, yeah. So today we are talking about The Lost Books of the Odyssey, which is by Zachary Mason. This is his first novel and it made the New York Times bestseller list, which is I think pretty impressive for someone's first novel. it's So I didn't look at what this really was before I picked it up to read it, which was both wonderful and a bad move because it's not a narrative from start to finish. It is framed as fragments. It's when it says the lost books of the Odyssey, he's not like being hyperbolic. They're small fragments of story. Like I think maybe the longest is m- maybe ten pages, and they are different, like retellings, reimaginings, little snippets of story that you don't see from the Odyssey, but are framed within that same narrative and the same framework. So I read the first couple of chapters, which were like four pages, and was very confused and hated it absolutely hated it um it was it was confusing it was annoying I didn't know what well I didn't know what was going on definition of confusing really isn't it but the more I read the more I enjoyed it uh and there are some segments that I enjoyed more than others but I by the end I actually I've really enjoyed the experience and it's something that I need to reread probably two or three times, I think, because there's a lot in there and it's quite hard to process, I think, everything that's going on on the first read through. So I enjoyed it. I was not expecting to after the first two or three chapters, but no, I liked it very much. What, what were your impressions?
1: Um, first impression was this is a very alternative mythology and unfortunately because i'm into politics as a political scientist now which is weird to say because i'm always used to being like no i'm just a classicist but also i suppose if you get your ma or msc and poli-sci you that uh, you, you're also a political scientist so the first thing i thought was like oh my god this is like alternative facts right I was like oh no what did I walk into this is so Trumpy um I was gonna be like is this um what what's her face um Kellyanne Conway's like mythological fever dream um because I I honestly was like this is like her fever dream or any like crazy Republican who just like co-ops takes over Mythology, but but it's not because quickly after the first again, like you, couple of chapters, um, I was like, yes, it's it's very alternative, um, but I liked how there were deliberate choices, and you could tell this is much deeper, and so this is not, uh, in fact, the were the realm of alternative facts and mythology, um, luckily, um, the organization is hectic. I also knew nothing about this, but I was just like, okay uh bought it on audible and then started listening and was like okay wh- whatever we get we get yeah it was like okay a bit of a slap in the face uh not gonna lie but i kind of like how it picks up on like stories we thought would be tried and true and then there's like big plot twist um i I guess it's like a combination of i i like how it's taking stories that we thought were predictable that we knew um i guess i don't i do and i don't love that he just takes it takes our beautiful original Homeric epic and then instead of just like and now what could have happened you know like like that any kind of preface you just go and then this is the story we know and then suddenly it morphs into something else and then you're like wait is this like for real yeah but but I don't know I I think overall like it's unpredictable but I like there's the the delight in the familiarity right of having the same mythic characters that you're very used to I will say if you're not familiar with Homer's epics you will struggle like you just don't I I don't know what to say other than like don't read this if you have not read the source material first because that is where I think it's most dangerous where you probably would be like oh yeah so this is like Greek myth right I I think it's kind of like maybe not as bad, I don't know. I, I I have no perspective when it comes to this because I grew up reading a lot of mythological stuff and I also became a classicist because I also wanted to study the ancient world when I was 11 years old, which is like absurdly young to be studying this, but I I was a weird kid. Um, I was just that history loving kid, but I would imagine it's the same as like reading Percy Jackson before you've really read any kind of Greek myth because while rick riordan is correct in a lot of details his stories do deviate right like any good piece of fiction that is inspired by but not an exact retelling but yeah i again classified as just one of those please please know the source material because there was what was it chapter four i don't remember what, what it was but it was the one where um odysseus comes home to and and so we tried to know tried to well if you know the source material you're expecting he comes home and he's going to find all these suitors living in his house and he kind of you know famously goes on a on a rampage and kills them yeah not not this one man um he comes home and then he like what 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 did it say it described him as um noticing that his wife acted weird do do you remember the exact wording
0: so there are there are three four maybe five chapters that describe Odysseus homecoming and I I think it's worth saying up front that this is not like Natalie Haynes thousand ships you you're not getting the Odysseus that turns up in each chapter is not the same character every time with like just jumping around on a on a timeline it's a different odysseus and a different story every single time so you get like four different homecomings and one of them he comes home and he's already there and earlier in the story he's at troy and this trojan comes in and says i'm odysseus for some reason i woke up in troy as a trojan married to a trojan woman i don't know what's going on and the Greek Odysseus kind of questions him about his his childhood and his marriage and all this kind of stuff. And, yeah, it's Odysseus just in the wrong body, and he gives him like a sack of gold and sends him on his merry way. And Trojan Odysseus goes back to Ithaca to Penelope and rules in Greek Odysseus's place. So Greek Odysseus gets back to Ithaca. There's this dude there, and obviously because he's disguised, no one knows that he's the like the real Greek Odysseus. So there's this Odysseus already there, and he gives him a sack of gold and sends him on his merry way. I and I, I really like kind of like the book ending and the symmetry of that. But there's another one where he comes back again in disguise, and Penelope is there, and she's like this super powerful, like sexual, sexually charged queen, and she's got this boy toy kind of lying at her feet, and the suitors are there, but they're all kind of under her thrall and Odysseus leaves quite swiftly and then you get a narrative of how he met Penelope and it turns out she's a werewolf um he goes to a forest to to meet her and, and ask her father if he could please marry her because you know she's a princess he's a prince it makes sense and she like they live in in the forest and they don't eat using knives and forks they eat with their bare hands and she has these like glowing green luminous eyes and at some point she takes him into the forest and turns into a wolf and he doesn't run away or try and kill her or anything so then okay they're married so you get this little bit of narrative and then the next day Odysseus goes back to the palace and Penelope has de-transformed maybe and her like her, her maid servants are scrubbing the floors clearly she's Gone wolf on all of the suitors, slaughtered them all, and then turned back into the the meek subservient woman that she's expected to be. And at the end, Odysseus says something along the lines of, "She knows I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't tolerate infidelity." And it's it's really it's interesting and it's quite jarring because you know that he knows that she's been like essentially running a harem of men, but there's something going on. He's split the two. Penelope personas and and his Penelope isn't actually running a a harem she's just she's been waiting faithfully so yeah it was fascinating
1: wait no I love the one what is it called wait I'm looking in the chapter my chapters on my audiobook uh uh, a sad revelation it's the one where he like like it's the one where he comes back right and then Penelope's remarried yeah right and That sounds like, yeah, yeah, a sad, yeah, a sad revelation.
0: She's, and it's, that's the, that's the first chapter in the book and it was confusing because it describes this homecoming, but he's not coming home to a palace. He's coming home to like a farmhouse with sheep and his wife has aged as you would expect in 20 years and remarried. And he, he just sees that she's happy. There's this husband there. Of course, there's a husband there who would, who would expect her to wait that long, And then he essentially, I think the the end of the chapter, and it's very short, it's, I'm looking at it, sorry, it's two pages, two and a half pages. And then he realizes, right, like the last paragraph of the chapter, he realizes that this isn't true. This is some illusion sent to him by a god, and he's in the middle of his wanderings, and he just has to keep going, which was, yeah, it's at that point I realized this is a different book this is going to be very different to what we've experienced.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, cause it was, so we open up with, she's re- remarried and then she's not. And then you have, you know, the ones you just talked about and then you have the one where he comes back, right? And then he sees like her shade and then he's like, what's going on? And then it's like, she's dead, spoiler, she's dead. And he's all like, oh my God. She's dead. What do I yeah. do?
0: And there's another one where when he does his underworld vision, Penelope's there and she doesn't recognize him. And she says, I was told my husband was never coming home. And he said, mm-hmm. well, essentially, eventually I will die and you'll be waiting for me here. And she says, I have no idea who you are, traveler. Go away and stop bothering me. And it was really poignant. A lot of this was really, it was really emotionally charged, which I think is quite difficult to do when you're working with such small page counts.
1: Which was a bold choice. I mean, it didn't have to be that short, but I guess he wanted it to be, which is really, really impressive. I did want to ask, though, did you have a favorite, should we call them short story? Dare we?
0: Dare we? Yeah, let's go with short story. Sure. I liked, yeah, I liked, um, there's one in there about Ariadne, which to begin with, felt very out of place because Ariadne obviously does not really show up in the Odyssey, but it narrates her falling in love with Theseus and helping Theseus um, slay the Minotaur. And then she goes uh, goes back to Athens with him and it describes them having a wonderful marriage and beautiful children. And then Theseus is off looking for a sword down in the basement and realises he's back in the labyrinth. And somehow time has shifted And the marriage that they've had together hasn't really happened, but he can remember it and he thinks somehow that she's tricking him. So then we get the Ariadne story that we're familiar with, where Theseus uses her to help him kill the Minotaur and to escape. But then he leaves her on the island. So you you kind of get the story told twice with very different endings, but the Ariadne who's left on the island Essentially, becomes a witch and haunts the island. People describe her as being like a a naiad or a spirit or, or something similar. And then Odysseus washes up, and suddenly she's Calypso. And then you think, oh, this is how it's playing into the Odyssey. This is why it's included in this book. And it was just the very last like paragraph maybe links it to the Odyssey. But you get this whole beautiful, interesting and very confusing story. Kind of fronting that did you have one that really caught your attention
1: yeah i had a couple but i really liked the one about cassandra that one was like wild because this is where we see how she gets the gift of prophecy from apollo and you know for the most part i was like okay it's pretty accurate right it follows everything we know from the Iliad, the odyssey and I want to say, uh, Aeschylus' Agamemnon, um, which is, I think, well, is there one more work that covers her? I don't remember at this point, but those are like the three main ones. So yeah, that one really, really caught my eye. Um, I'm trying to see how long this chapter was read. It's like four minutes. It's pretty short. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. No, I found it to be, are you checking how long it was in the, um, the, the...
0: yeah it's a whole two pages
1: yeah so i was like i don't know it's like a two two minutes of being read to me so i was like okay so this short story was great um yeah i i, I kind of like how it's not the classical take on her curse right where it's like she's doomed to say a prophecy and then like people just ignore her because they're like okay she doesn't know what she's talking about like i liked how there was a the plot twist where like she legitimately believed what she was saying right it was a deliberate choice and i like this choice because i felt that like it really plays like drives home this almost like claustrophobic entrapment right where if she really i don't know it's like it plays up the 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 idea that like oh apollo lied to her right um and uh, yeah like like i don't know it's like she really really it's not she's she's not just saying stuff she believes and so when you really believe in something then you're you you truly are trapped by fate but you also have this idea of people are she's she's also she's not just trapped by fate but she's also this like intelligent very intelligent girl she's a bit rebellious right she's like Odysseus I love the parallels between her and Odysseus but while they have parallel stories of both being deeply intelligent people trapped by fate then there's this mirroring of Cassandra can never escape her fate right but Odysseus is consistently trying to outrun his own fate um it's like tragedy but on steroids because you just it really this chapter really i I call it a chapter let this snippet it's not even a chapter but this snippet really in in the like two pages that he had he somehow really drives home the point that two characters very paralleled one is successful one is not they're both kind of trapped boom and you're like oh so I, I don't know. It's like short enough that it kind of slaps you in the face with that revelation. And then you're like, oh, that's so deep in like two pages. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It just, there's something about it brings out the tragedy and the, the humanity of the characters involved. Right. Cause you're, I don't know. Yeah. That one struck me. Yeah. That one was really powerful. I also really liked, I don't know if I'm just on a kick for certain characters, but what is it? The Agamemnon chapter, right?
0: Where where he keeps sending his advisors to find knowledge for him.
1: Yeah. It's like, what is it called? Co- uh, it's called, my chapter's called Agamemnon and the world. Is that what your chapter's called?
0: Uh, yes.
1: Yeah. Basically, he just, he demands shortened, concise versions of what, what is life me- or whatever.
0: Yeah, and it it's again it's five pages, and it describes Agamemnon building a castle, like but like tunneling under the ground because he can't build up on the the beach of Troy, so he tunnels underground, and every time there's like a, a cave in, they just tunnel in a different direction, and he sends three advisors, including Odysseus, out to find, like, essentially
1: writing a book explaining like everything in the yeah. world. Was that correct? I was, like, I was like, so he wants the theory of everything?
0: Yeah, in one book. One book. Okay. But yeah, he, he sends people, he sends them out to like the sum of all human knowledge in one book. And they come back, with, it's so cool. They come back with a book that can be read forwards and backwards and then differently if you skip every third word. And all of human knowledge. And he's like, no, this is absolutely not at all what I wanted and sends them off again. And they, he does this like three times and each time they come back, like Troy is more and more ruined and Agamemnon's palace is deeper and deeper underground. And then Odysseus is the, the only one who comes back finally. And he says he's, he gives him a ring and he says he's inscribed like the, uh, the whole human knowledge, just one word on this ring. And and then Agamemnon dies.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, oh, okay.
0: So what I have to ask, what was the one snippet short story that was the weirdest for you to read?
1: Does it have to be the weirdest or can it just be like most surprising?
0: Surprising also works.
1: Um, The Polyphemus one, maybe? Just because I'm not... Because it... I don't know, yeah, you're not used to hearing from him, and you don't expect to hear from a
0: cyclops, right? And he's understandably angry with Odysseus, but angry because like, he wasn't going to hurt them. He was a little bit pissed that he, that he came back home and found them in his food.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's also just like that he claims he wasn't fooled when Odysseus called himself nobody. You know, he was just like, oh, I thought it was impolite to ask questions because obviously this is strange but I shouldn't say anything. Yeah, I don't know. It's Because it, we're so trained to sort of sympathize with the quote unquote bad guy in the tale, right? So you can see how, I mean, it plays around with perspective where you're like, the idea of who's truly the good guy or the bad guy, or the protagonist or the antagonist, it's really framed by the storyteller's own perspective. And all we get, right, in the original is just Odysseus this, Odysseus that. And it was quite interesting because in this, uh, these works, Odysseus isn't always even the focus. He kind of just, like, appears in some of them and as, like, a tangentially related sort of side person. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Different, right?
0: The one that I think I found the strangest to read, there's a chapter that there's a little footnote by it, it it's kind of put together like a translation of actual ancient text. so occasionally there are little footnotes from the translator uh, explaining interesting points and this one has a footnote saying this this text purports to be from uh, whatever classical Greece but much more likely comes from medieval Europe somewhere it's like okay that's that's interesting and it's a discussion on how the Odyssey and the Iliad are actually rule books for chess,
1: Mm.
0: for an ancient game of chess. And I was a little perplexed reading it because even in a book that is so surprising and you take so many very sharp right turns when you're not expecting to, and each chapter is drastically different from the last, that was a little jarring and a little odd i
1: i mean it's jarring but you know what i love it It maybe it's because i'm a chess fan i play chess i've grown up playing chess so i love it so i guess that's why like for me that one was not like super weird because i was just like yes like of course it's a chess game what else would it be yeah i was like i mean uh, look at you and you're like three-dimensional thinking i'm like this is brilliant so yeah i guess i but you know what the chess thing did remind me now that you say it It did remind me of, um, oh, what's it called? Um, oh my God, what's it called? The, the, the Queen's Gambit, right? Is that the, I didn't
0: watch it. Is that the chess one? Uh, You know, I haven't watched it, but yeah.
1: Okay. I think it's the Queen's Gambit. But yeah, it's the one where the, like, girl was into chess. And then I just know that, like, everyone was watching it around the pandemic times. And, like, everyone was obsessed with it. so. Yeah. I don't know. It just it reminded me of like Queen's Gambit type of thing and I was like, this is brilliant. So I really liked it actually.
0: What did you think of the fragment that had Achilles as a golem?
1: Um, that one I hadn't I mean, I was just like, This is fucking weird, man. I I mean I guess I was also trying to look at like my um When I was an undergrad, I took a class on, it was, I don't know why they even ran this or let me take it. It, Like, it was too good to be a class in undergrad. But they they let me take a class on uh, Harry Potter and alchemy and religion. Like, amazing class. But we, in that one, we kind of dissect using highly mythological creatures and references and... Alchemical things and all the things you would expect essentially in in in, in stories. And so this harkened me back to that because I was like, I'm pretty sure we talked about golems in that class, right? as a being kind of mysterious and and actually it was funny because I also remembered it was twofold. there's a golem legend that there's supposed to be a golem hidden in the top floor of a certain church in Prague. And so when I was touring around with my friend, um, she was like, wait, let me take you into this uh, ancient church because there's a golem, you know, like living somewhere in here. And so we were like running around this church being like, where's the golem? I can't find it. Can you find it? We never found it. I think it was tourist kitschy thing, but it, yeah, it was, it was hilarious. So I was analyzing it of two minds. I was like, okay. I'm trying to remember what this class taught me about golems. And then I'm also just looking at this is the weirdest thing. So why, why would he have picked a golem out of all the things? Maybe I read way too much into it.
0: No, I just, what was really interesting for me. So for people who haven't read it, Odysseus is essentially kidnapped by Agamemnon. They then go to get Achilles who has just died from a snake bite, maybe. And, Uh, Odysseus says well I can't go back empty empty handed Agamemnon will kill me so they just randomly make Achilles out of clay and inscribe life on his forehead and he comes to life and Patroclus goes with them he's the in this version he's the son of the the king that Achilles has been living with so Patroclus goes with them to kind of like hide the ruse uh, so no one gets killed and it works right they've got this golem he can't be hurt because he's made of clay so he's a a fighting machine and does all the things in Troy that he's supposed to do and then Patroclus dies and there's this really poignant scene where the golem is like trying to get Patroclus to wake up because he doesn't understand what death is he's lost his friend he wants his friend to get back up and it's kind of tragic and it's a point in, in the Iliad that is always tragic, but it was tragic in a, a different way. And I found that very interesting. And I also enjoyed Odysseus as a trickster, the intelligent uh, man that we've, we've all come to expect, but from a very different angle. That's, I, would, I, I don't think if I had a thousand years, I could have come up with that particular story.
1: I don't think so either. I don't know, but did you did you think more into why a golem out of all the things, or were you just like, no, nope, I'm going with it?
0: I didn't. It felt when I when I started the chapter, it did feel a little off because I golems are not things that I associate with ancient Greece, and I don't also know enough to know that if if golems are a thing, I don't I don't think they are, but I don't know. But then what did get me thinking was kind of the practice of making cult statues. And in Mesopotamia, at least, they are, once they're made, they're considered, there are various rituals where the craftsmen throw away their tools and they swear that they didn't build this statue because it it can't have been built. It is literally a god. It just came into existence. And that kind of idea of making a being that is alive or divine, it felt kind of related. It's not the same because obviously the cult statues don't you don't watch them get up and walk around. But it's the same idea of making. Making something um, animate out of inanimate natural materials, so that that was interesting. I don't know if that's where the author was going with it or guessing it from that kind of idea, but yeah, it, it was the more I thought about it, the more I was like, huh, this is a really fascinating way to to show this aspect of Odysseus and to explain this part of the story.
1: I also wonder I mean, this was written way before it came out, but so it couldn't have been um influenced by it. but a lot of it and like the creation and, and the fact that you like sculpt things, it's very funny because i thought about do you remember that odyssey quest in assassin's creed where it's like the little girl who crafted her friends out of clay and then like you yes i do remember that was delightful
0: and also tragic
1: yeah so it's like you have like cassandra Alexius, like walk up to this little girl and you're like why is this little girl playing in the mud we shall go find out and then it's like oh and then she's all my mother to- my mother is dead. So she told me to go make friends. So she was like, see? And I did. Silly missios, I have made my friends out of clay. And you're like, oh, you poor thing. you." No one taught you that. That's not. Okay, woo. And so obviously, depending on whether you want to be nice or mean, you can say, good job, and leave her and be sad. Or you say, snap out of it. This is not how you make friends. And then she gets mad at you. and goes away but you know what that's what i'm saying this this entire thing is like that that quest line is like a microcosm of everything because if i was like summing up and finding a parallel of how weird this book is compared to like everything else that's what i'm going with i'm just going to i'm just going with like yep it's like the little girl and and her and, and her clay friends that's what this is i don't know like did you find yourself, as you were reading this, thinking, actually, I could parallel this with a lot of things from, like, AC Odyssey?
0: I didn't. But I should I should reread it and then go and replay. Uh,
1: I don't know. I I mean, I guess, like, okay, I don't assume because I'm like, okay, everyone, obviously, super different. And and we all, uh, you know, um, process things differently. But I don't know. It's because, one, I'm obsessed with the game. But everyone who knows me knows that. But also just, like... It's bonkers in its own way and, and I spent so much of my time analyzing why it's bonkers or why it's not that yeah, my reception brain, once it's like turned on, that's just what I think about. So yeah, I was I was like there were several um, weird quests in Odyssey that I was like, actually though, this this is like something uh, I
0: mm-hmm.
1: would have seen in, in in the game.
0: Yeah. What did you? Sorry, this is the the other the other episode that I really wanted to ask about was um, there's a, a fragment in there where Paris is death,
1: mm-hmm. like
0: the divine being death, and comes to visit and steals Helen away with him, and then they go to the kingdom of the of the dead, which is Troy, and wage war, and it was. Trippy and weird and amazing, and I wanted to get your your thoughts on it too.
1: It is trippy and weird and amazing because I think that the best part about that is fucking Paris is dead. (laughs) Like, like I don't even know how to say. Like, I honestly. I was listening to that. And the only thing that really registered was Paris is dead. Now we celebrate. Hallelujah. 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 The angels sing. Like, like that was literally my entire, I was just like, and now the Trojan War and the entire Iliad, it's so much better because I don't have to deal with this dipshit anymore. Like, yay. Um, I loved, put it this way. In in a in an adaptation that's just bonkers, where we get the most bonkers thing that we wish would happen, in like every other adaptation, I was like, you do you. I am so happy someone took it upon him or herself to just kill him off which is the best thing that could have happened (laughs) because i i hate this character so much so i'm just like any universe in which i'm like i can get at least one adaptation where he's just killed off for the betterment of like the world ah the angels sing so yes i I don't, I didn't, I mean, it's a bit disappointing, but I really didn't have anything deeper only because I was reveling in the fact that, because as I was listening to it, because as I was listening to it, it would just happen. My brain literally every, I swear to God, it's, and it wasn't even a long section, but like every five seconds, I was just like, and he's dead, and he's dead, and he's dead. Anything could happen. I don't care. He's dead. And well, then I got the he's dead, and then the periodic, and I don't even care that Helen might be upset or sad if he's gone. So I, I was just very happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, I don't care. Woo! But wait, no. So, yeah. S- uh, s- um. So sadly, yeah, that that um that one was kind of disappointing. But wait, I'm trying to remember. The other, uh, there was another chapter. Um, wait, okay, wait, I have to find what it's called because I, I can't remember unless I look at the titles. Ah, okay, I think it was Guest Friend. Yes, okay, Guest Friend. It's the one where Alcanus, the king of the Phaeacians, right? When they're talking, so uh, it's the one where they have this, yeah, they have this super deep conversation, and he says something about how um each man is going to live out his life as a character in a story told by somebody else i loved one and i want to like i'm not a tattoo person so i will not get that tattooed on me but i will happily
0: print that out and stick it on my wall it was it was really in they were all really interesting and that was that's like I think chapter four or five, so it's one of the earlier ones, and I need to go back and read it now that my brain has adjusted to what this book is. But as they're talking, Alcinous is describing how in Phoenicia they they think they're like stories being told by someone else and he's thought about maybe trying to find the storyteller. And Odysseus says, no, no, don't, don't do that. Because what if he's satisfied with his story and he ends it and then you cease to exist? And then right at the very end, Odysseus starts telling his own story about a king and a stranger washed up from the sea walking out at night, which is exactly what they're doing, and how they approach a, like a grove of trees, which is hiding the king's men who are under instructions to kill the traveler and he's like what if the traveler kind of moves in front of the king so that at the last minute the archers shoot the wrong person and then it it ends with the insinuation that Odysseus is in fact the person telling Alcinous's story which was yeah a little mind bending. I need to go and read it again.
1: Yeah, it's mind bending also because it it they have this long conversation, but then Alcinous literally disappears from the entire chapter, and you're like, where the fuck did he go? And then Odysseus's voice suddenly merges with like your narrator, who's like this dude in the in the in in the nether world, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's this like beautifully almost like what self-referential philosophy thing i don't know it was it was beautiful it was bizarre and i still wasn't sure i was like i don't really know what i'm looking
0: at i'm I'm still not entirely sure what it is i've read yeah like
1: because again
0: which is just... why i need to go back and reread it.
1: yeah because it's like so short so you're like i just don't i don't know what's going on um and then i did want to ask you though so he odysseus does appear almost like a random side character in a lot of these. What did you think about the two
0: chapters that he himself narrates? Really interesting. I enjoyed them. One of them, he goes to war as a a teenage boy, essentially, and clearly doesn't want to be there and leaves before the end and then spends his time traveling as a bard and ends up creating stories about himself and singing them all around the Eastern Mediterranean. And then eventually, like when he gets bored enough, he and the war is over, he goes back home. And his his dad is thrilled to see him, which is a change of pace, because they haven't got along very well up until that point. And he takes over as king and kind of hangs up his his lyre and his sword and lives out his days not singing in case someone recognizes him. But he says occasionally, other bards come through and and he always tips them <laughs> better when they know his songs. But it's, again, ins- strongly insinuated that the Odyssey that survives for us is, in fact, a, comp- a composition of Odysseus that he essentially made up to make himself sound better than he was. It, I, I did like that very much. And then the, the closing, ch- no, the closing chapter is...
1: Wait, wasn't that the one where he also bribed like a slave to murder Helen too?
0: Yes. Yep, that's exactly right. He bribes a slave to murder Helen so that the war will end because Agamemnon isn't going to end it. And he does so and, well, she does so. And then (laughs) the Trojans ambush them while they're all in this meeting about Helen being dead. And and that's when Odysseus kind of escapes. Uh, One of the other ones that, Odysseus narrates is the closing chapter which is one of the longer ones and I enjoyed that both the chapter and its placement in the book because it's Odysseus at the end of his life telling you about his last voyage and he gathers all of the people from who were in Troy with him who were still alive there's like probably about five of them and a bunch of young men from Ithaca who just want to go on a jaunt and they go and they kind of Retrace his steps of the journey back, and Circe's house is abandoned, and Calypso's cave is is abandoned, and they make it all the way back to Troy, which is somehow this like tourist attraction and full of actors dressed up as the Greek and the Trojan heroes, and there are market stalls everywhere, and, and it's fascinating to read, and it's told by an Odysseus who is. He's old and happy with his life and honestly just ready to kind of go home. And he, the very last bit, he picks up this shield on the beach and it's Achilles shield. And he's like deeply moved and and touched to have found it. And he doesn't, it feels wrong to take it away with him. So he throws it out into the ocean and then leaves to get back on his boat. And then the final paragraph is Athena watching him being very very glad that he hadn't noticed that there is actually an entire stall selling those shields in the ruins of troy it was it was a nice ending to uh, the book and it was i enjoyed thinking about odysseus at the end of his life essentially having done all of these things and been this this person just being someone reminiscing um (laughs)
1: It was yeah, strange because he, he comes off right as either he's an incorrigible liar or just a cruel coward who wants to get out of everything. Which is funny because actually that's how he's described, isn't it, in Virgil's Aeneid? As like the dude who like doesn't want to fight. But, you know, the Aeneid, I have problems with that too. But I do love both of these snippets. Because what it presents you is you're essentially left with a question, right? Which is, so is Odysseus the first literary figure to be considered the first truly unreliable storyteller or narrator in history, or is he just is he is he right? Is he true? I don't know. It's it's kind of it. It definitely spoke to me as like a why should we believe? It? Anything this man says or does, because he's so, like, perfect. He's schizophrenic in his actions. I was like trying to find a word. I was like, what? How? Well, I was like, why are you hot and cold, you up and down? What? What are you, dude? Yeah, he's like acting very schizophrenic. Um, because one moment he's like amazing and awesome and this and the other thing, and then the next he's just like, ah, run away. Let's tell some stories. I will be Homer, but better. And then I'm gonna kill her again with the killing of Helen because it is a character I don't love. I don't hate her as much as Paris, but again I was kind of like, Ah, you bribe someone to kill her. Ah, the Age of Sing again, she's dead. But I'm also like, but we have seen enough things to know that she is kind of also an innocent victim. Even if you look at it as she ran away. Certainly if if you go by the she was stolen narrative but so so i i didn't rejoice quite as much in in her being murdered by a slave but i was so i mean i don't know i you know we we we've sussed out how what a complicated relationship we have with helen it is tricky and through all the different adaptations we've seen but yeah i just i was kind of, i don't know i felt guilty did, did you kind of have a moment of oh my god yes she's she's dead she's gone
0: i honestly wasn't sure that she was dead um okay. so she's you don't the slave woman brings back her scalp I think which is in itself not pleasant but also you don't have to be dead so I was while I was reading I was kind of waiting for the there to be a twist and for Helen to be alive um and then we never actually find out because we, we follow Odysseus off on his journeys as a bard so yeah I don't I don't know Helen was interesting in this. She didn't obviously it's a, a book focused on Odysseus, but she's the different Helens that are presented are, I think, as varied as the different Odysseuses. Odyssei. I don't know how we're pluralizing that. But it was, it was, yeah. yeah. The whole thing was just so interesting. And as as someone who has worked with fragmentary ancient texts, having these snippets of literature, it felt not quite as frustrating as working with fragments of originals because there was usually some kind of narrative resolution in in the story segments we presented with, but it felt very much like you don't often have a whole text from beginning to end when you're translating. So having a whole book full of these little fragmentary stories that sometimes relate to each other and most of the time don't really accept that they all have this character who's a different character in everyone was really, really interesting. Just the whole thing was interesting and fascinating, and I loved how it all came together but didn't didn't make a coherent whole. It was really good.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, actually, that made me realize um... – Because I, I, well, also undergrad level is not as uh, intense, but yeah, I I haven't really worked with fragmentary material beyond reading Sappho fragments. And so I, I guess I don't, I'm not quite as familiar with how annoying it might be, but actually it was funny because I was thinking about that and I was like would you love to see this dude take on Sappho fragments and do his own like thing Anyways. of Sappho? Like, this is something I desperately want to see. Um, and so I did want to ask you, I was like, considering how like bonkers and crazy, but also like it, it leaves so much room and creativity for more. If you were to take on any different like ancient works, what would you want this dude to take on? Gilgamesh
0: actually, because I feel like there's, with the epic and also the shorter stories there is a very wide scope for things that could be included. It's obviously not as extensive as the Iliad and the Odyssey, but there are a lot of different characters. There are a lot of divine figures that turn up um, and it gives you room for things like the Mesopotamian flood narrative and Ishtar being the the hot mess that she is. I'm going to be struck by lightning now. Um, And all that kind of... (laughs) All that kind of thing. I I think it, it it would be a really really interesting way to explore that section of Mesopotamian mythology. Oh,
1: I like that idea. We I mean we have um well again I didn't study ancient uh, Mesopotamia unfortunately, but if I remember there's like one great translation of. Gilgamesh, that was kind of put into was it like a Penguin Classic? But that's it. Like we don't have anything else.
0: Yeah, Andrew George did the Penguin. Oh no, no, there are there are loads of translation. There are there are kids' books oh. of it. There are um, novelizations of it. Andrew George is the standard um, kind of academic translation, uh, and he did the Penguin Classic as well, which is fantastic. And Benjamin Foster did another one recently, which is also very good. So we we have a. a good amount but we don't have we don't have the same level of novelization i think that we see the greek myth well it pops up here and there but it's not yeah i
1: mean that's obviously just because people have a greater unfamiliarity with ancient Mesopotamia in general i mean no one knows the names they're like oh they're weird they're hard i don't know what this is it doesn't immediately stand out to you the way like Egyptian mythology is bonkers. So people are like drawn to that. And then they're like, ah, all these like animal headed gods. This is weird. You know, and then Greek and Roman gods stand out to people because they're like people, just the worst of them. And even Norse mythology, which is also like massively weird, is still kind of on that border of bonkers, but also like kind of relatable because, you know, the way that they're described as being like kind of semi spoiled special humans. So you're like, okay. Yeah, I don't know. There there's no like comparable thing I feel like cuz whenever I've been able to delve into any kind of like Mesopotamian mythology, I'm just like
0: what what
1: what?
0: I think I think there's a lot of room for it. I think it's because it's not in the public consciousness so much mm-hmm. people like for Norse stuff, we have the Marvel movies which are obviously not retellings but include characters and that kind of plugs people into Norse mythology that way. We've got the whole of classical literature is recreated in in comic books and movies and all of this kind of thing. And we don't get the same kind of thing for Mesopotamia, which is a shame because I think if you're even if you're just looking at the gods, there is the same squabbles. There's the same infighting. There's the same like plotting and conspiracy and familial issues that you see. In the classical sets, it's just people don't know about them so much. So they don't get picked up for this kind of popular treatment.
1: I wish someone would take and like do a whole Percy Jackson type of series on Ishtar.
0: So some someone not on Ishtar, he's doing. Um, the first book is called The City of the Plague God, and he's currently working on the sequel. Um, I'm going to find his name. Hang on. Okay, it's it's Salwat Chatter, who is a, a British man and it's under the Rick Riordan presents label.
1: Okay.
0: Um and it's his his first book is City of the Plague God, and it's following a kid obviously interacting with um the Mesopotamian god. Uh which one is it? Jesus. Uh girl. there we go. Who, who is the the plague oh. god? So he's a an Iraqi boy and it, follows his adventures essentially and you find like Gilgamesh is in there as a pacifist and a vegan baker and (laughs) um, yeah it's 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 really good and he's the second one I think is dealing with Tiamat but that's not been released yet
1: oh the celestial being Tiamat Mm -hmm. you know every time I hear that I, I want to think I desperately want to think of like ancient Mesopotamia unfortunately marvel ruined it because yep. when i think of the celestial tiamat i think of eternals and i'm like <gasps> uh yeah so my my perception is skewed unfortunately i
0: don't know that is okay and we have we have wandered yes, far.
1: we have wandered far. i
0: know you finished sorry. oh no
1: it's fine i was like we have wandered but that's but that's I, I, it's my favorite thing to take these little tangents because well i'm so into reception that anything that's even tangentially
0: related and again with this book, it's, it's a whole book of tangents. So I think I, f- I feel like tangents is fine.
1: Because I feel like the point of the book, though, is to get you thinking of like, okay, this is clearly different. This is not the source material. Where did he get this tangent? Is he picking on the smallest rumors or like a tiniest mention one word? Um, but I think I love it because it invites your own tangents, right? Like, as I was saying, as I was listening to it, my own tangent started, because then I was automatically thinking of, okay, well, what reception-y things do I know that could have easily fit into this work? A lot of Assassin's Creed, I was like, Mm -hmm. uh, that could all fit in here, because that works. So I, um, yeah, initially not liking it, because I do like my narratives much more linear, much more easy to fall into and understand. So once I got used to stylistically how it's set up and where I found myself being like, I think I shouldn't be going on a tangent. Why am I thinking of like 10 other things that make me want to reread or rewatch? But I was like, no, this is Mm -hmm. what it's for. And I think it it goes into the larger conversation of like the wider conversation about reception of classical material. Because like what he's doing is receiving it. And then changing it. And then he wants you and invites you to think about what other things you've seen. Or if there hasn't been anything done, I feel like this work invites you to imagine then, well, if we were to create a different, mm-hmm. you know, thing that was reception, what would we do? So I don't know. I, I liked it because of the wide open space. Um, and it gave us the space to imagine far more than any of the other things we've read because they're a solid narrative. So you don't need to, you just go, Oh, okay. It might be similar to one or two things, but just that the
0: gaps are already filled in for you.
1: Exactly. So that's what I really loved about this one. Um, thoughts, thoughts.
0: I just that I agree wholeheartedly. I think, again, I hated it after the first three chapters and then I kept going and it's really, really good. It's a fantastic book. And I enjoyed it very much. I think you're right. I think it invites you to think about the gaps in stories and how they get filled in and all the different ways that what truth, in inverted commas, could be translated into. Like if we're taking the Homeric epic as truth, the many different ways that that can be worked around and subverted and retold in a way that still keeps the, it still hangs together with the same main plot points, but it's just a very, very different experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree. But also um, I was thinking of a work when I was uh, listening to, it. oh, it's a watch. It's going to, I'm not going to be able to remember it now and it's going to come back to me who knows when? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, no. It's always, I feel like it always happens. I was, I'm like, I'm like, I'm thinking of something and I'm like, yes, in the moment. And then, uh, oh, you know, this, this should be a lesson. I should really write things down. Okay. Well, I'll skip on to the second point because I clearly can't remember the first, but I was having a conversation the other day about um with, with someone who is not a classicist. They're, they're completely different. I think, uh, were they into They're the film major or something like that anyway i was talking to someone who was asking about the work that classes do and the things i've seen from my perspective and we got talking about like just you know differences in oh it's it spark uh, yes okay now i'm uh, now now i'm placing the conversation it started because i got a question asked which is oh i've never read any of these materials these epics I've heard of them, but I've never read them. I want to read them. So what translation do you recommend? And I said, well, that's a contentious question. I said, it depends because every classicist will have a different idea about what the best is. And this person was like, oh, I didn't know. Why would this be contentious? And I said, well, you know, it goes down to like, well, it goes down to translation of the original Greek because I was like I mean you know the words are similar but everyone's going to translate it different so then I gave him the example of you know let's say in a certain translation someone uses the translation of the shiny eyed lacedaemonians whatever and then a different translation says the bright eyed lacedaemonians and I was like well you know you can you can infer however you want um but you know i'm like okay so what do you think is the difference does it change the context of the sentence whether someone says the bright eyed or the shiny eyed probably not that much in the end but it still is different and so i was like it just depends like do you want to be closer to the original source material do you want to be do you want to go for ease of reading and understanding or not as close to word for word? right Want clarity and and so it was this big discussion with this person and they like it it was like fireworks going off in their brain because their their mind was suddenly opened up and they were like what oh my gosh and i was like yeah i know this is exciting this is this is part of being a classicist this is what we love we love debating endlessly what translations are better um i mean at the end of all of that i said i personally and I, and it's probably I've been influenced just because of what translations I was reading in classes and what what we worked off of but I I personally like the fagels translation um because I think for me that one is more for ease of reading even if it's I mean it's still pretty good right they're all pretty close but I, I like the Fagles translations the best, although I do own, well, cool. like any good classicist, mm-hmm. I own about four or five different copies, different translations. I, you know, I really like the Stephen Mitchell one, but that one's much closer to the original Greek. I think I'm really excited. Once Emily Wilson finishes her Iliad, I will be buying that and have a sixth copy. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I was like, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I don't know where i was going with that but 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 i guess it was tangentially related to like any good translation where you're debating and fighting over Mm -hmm. um like specific translations and word choices and and adaptations and stuff this book kind of fits into that with the characters i was noticing like you know when you're deciding to read something it it kind of goes into the large canon of because I, I don't know I was sitting there at the end being like would I be likely to want to reread this or recommend it to somebody Yeah I was kind of like well it's kind of like a translation thing where either you'll love it because it's different but I also know some super mm-hmm. traditionalist classicists who would hate this no matter how good it got they would just be like no this is not I prefer closer to the original and not so derivative yeah. so yeah those are just some of my last minute thoughts on the the book as a
0: whole They're good thoughts we should thank you I like to think that I have good thoughts we should probably end there because I don't think I have anything to add except this is a good book it was challenging but excellent and I, I would recommend it
1: perfect look at that I get to mic drop my way out of this episode <laughs> I won't really drop my mic, everyone, don't worry, don't be afraid for my mic. Good. It will be beautifully <laughs> softly placed down.
0: Well, thank you, Lexi.
1: Thanks. Yeah, well, thank you for, for I feel like, you know, for going on this journey with me in this very strange. <laughs> it's
0: been a journey. It's
1: been a journey, a really strange, strange journey. So. Uh, Thank you, because I don't know anyone else really who would want to go through this strange journey um, (laughs) so consistently, right?
0: It has been a delight and a pleasure. Yes, it has.
1: Uh, Anyway, join us next week as we continue our odyssey through the odyssey.
0: Ah, ba (laughs) Ah, Come for the odyssey, stay for the dad jokes.
1: The bad dad jokes, yep and the bad puns that I will inevitably rip out at some point alright we'll see you next week guys bye bye. hey thanks for listening don't forget to leave us a review and you can also follow us on social media at the reading party podcast if you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion then email us at the reading at gmail.com see you next week